Worshiping gods in Roman times was very much interwoven into the kind of everyday fabric of society. It touched people's jobs, touched people's money, it touched people, how people interacted socially, what, uh, what parties were like. It affected politics, of course. It was part of a system. It was a really a, a kingdom in itself, really. Now, Christians in the early church didn't participate in worshiping anything other than Jesus, any other God other than Jesus. Uh, and also, Christians in the early church were called atheists because they didn't participate in the worship of the gods, whether they be local gods or national gods, or even kind of the, the ritual worship of, of Caesar, of the emperor. Now, this made Christians controversial, and made Christians rebellious, and made Christians kind of marginalized uh, in society. Being called an atheist then wasn't some kind of badge of honor. It wasn't something someone would say to uh, signal how intelligent or rational they were. It was kind of being an outcast. It was not really showing off your ego or intelligence. It was more of a negative thing. Now, the worship of idols built cities. Like idol worship is what kind of under, uh, underpinned a lot of cities, as we see in this story in Ephesus. It's a livelihood for many people and a structural support for this city here in Ephesus. It would be like, for, for Manchester, it would be like the arts and culture sector to suddenly be gone or to be in, in an upheaval. Or maybe something even more crazy would be if all the bars and pubs closed in all of Manchester. And there, there, would, there would be a riot. People would be in disarray. It would be outrage. It would be mayhem. And that's what we see going on in this story. Justin Martyr was the name of a Christian who, who lived between the years of 100 and 165, so quite early on. I'm quite close, actually, to our story here in Acts. And as a Christian, Justin Martyr was called an atheist, and he accepted this put-down being called an atheist. Uh, he had this quote that says, We confess, we Christians, we confess that we are atheists, so far as gods of this sort are concerned, but not with respect to the most true God, the Father of righteousness. See, the more we follow Jesus, the more we will become atheists of all other gods. The more we follow Jesus, the more we become atheistic in some ways. Now, this is good for us because Jesus is better than all other gods. He's better than all those things. And so the more we have of a good thing, the less we have of a bad thing, like that's generally good, right? That's a good thing. But it's not quite simple as that, unfortunately. And we know that in our own lives. Because we're stuck in our own worlds. We're stuck worshiping our own gods. And we need Jesus to rescue us. We need him to come through for us. Often we can't see it for ourselves. We need people speaking Jesus' words to us. Other people speaking to us. Because we want something better. We're, we're made for something better. And we need him to change us in all areas of our lives. So this is what we're going to look at today in this story here. We're first, we're going to take a step back and ask the question, what is an idol? What, what's the deal with this idol thing? And then we're going to look at how Jesus disrupts idols here in this story. And then we'll look at, it, specifically in this story, the two reactions. There's a riot uh, and, and then God moves. So there's two kind of reactions. So we're going to look at one, what is an idol? Secondly, how Jesus disrupts idolatry, how Jesus disrupts idol worship. Thirdly, the reactions to this disruption. But let's first take a step back and look at and ask the question, what is an idol? What is this all about? Well, an idol can be anything. It can literally be anything. It can be what you give your time, your money, or your attention to. It's everything from an actual image of like some kind of wannabe God that you could place on your mantelpiece as was going on here in Ephesus. Or it could just be like the good idea of something. 
They're obvious idols, like praying to other gods, like worshiping other gods. There are other idol, obvious idols are getting drunk all the time, sleeping with people who are not your spouse, pornography, going to pornography sites, um, choosing your own skin color to, to get privilege instead of other people. Same thing with class backgrounds. We make idols out of everything. Idols out of everything. Now, there are not so obvious idols. Like maybe you don't pray to a different God, but you kind of functionally pray that getting in the right school or the right career or the right path is going to give you that comfort and security. That's just as much idol worship as it is um, praying to something else. Showing up to church, thinking that that will make you right with God. That's idol worship because church isn't our God. Jesus is our God. Being The idea that being nice, like that's going to somehow outweigh all the bad stuff that you've done in your life. That's idol worship too. Thinking that your time is being should be spent with you, like by you and for you at all times. That's idol worship of your time. Now, this doesn't mean that everything you give to has to be an idol because we give to lots of things and that can be really good. So, so like, what is idolatry then? And what is it? Well, it's asking for that thing that we're giving our time, our money, our attention to. Asking for that thing to give you something that only God can. That's what an idol is. Asking for something else to give you something that only God can give you. Believing that it can. Hoping that it can. Trusting that it can. Often, this is when we make good things into ultimate things, which turns those good things into bad things. You can have a perfectly good thing, but if we're going to put it on a pedestal higher than what it's even made for, then that's going to turn it into an ultimate thing, which turns it into a bad thing for us because we end up, you know, sacrificing our lives for us. Now, we probably won't say we worship idols. Like, oh, I was busy worshiping that idol the other day. It was kind of weird. Like, we're not going to say that, um, but we act like it. We've, we, we functionally worship other things all the time, and we sacrifice for those things all the time. The result of staying stuck in that, the result is we end up missing out on life. We end up missing out on God because of our devotion to all these other things that are not worth our devotion. All these other things that are not worth our time or money or attention in the way that we're giving them. Now, that's a really big deal. So how can we tell if we're idolatrous, if we're worshiping an idol? Well, here are some questions that might, might be helpful. And this is something you could run through whenever. Some questions. How to know um, what kind of idols are you worshiping? Because you are. Is a question of like what kind. When something is taken away that you enjoy, how do you act? When you are sad, scared, lonely, anxious, where do you run to? When are you happy, elated, and on top of the world, when you're kind of in a good spot, who do you give thanks to? To God? To something else? Are there things that surprise you about how you've reacted during this lockdown? Maybe emotionally, like physically, whatever the thing might be. Did, like, for example, did not taking a holiday affect you a little bit too much. It should affect us. We should be sad, but did it, it's a possibility, a possibility that it did affect you a little bit too much. And maybe like the idea of, of your own leisure time is, is an idol. What are you giving yourself to? Whatever it is that you're giving yourself to, and, and we know, you know we give ourselves to lots of things and that can be very good, but is it flowing out of the identity of being a daughter or a son of God? Or is it flowing from something else? What are we trying to get out of it? And this is how we can love people well and not turn them into idols, is as we love others well, we do that from an identity of what God has given us. Uh, and this is really good for them. 
This is really good for us. This is also how we can um, go far in our careers and work our careers um, in the ways that we're called to, in the ways that make us feel alive, without it being an idol. Because we work out of the identity of already being accepted to God, of our comfort and security already being found on God, on our, our ideas of success being founded on what God says is success and not what an idolatrous career could tell us. Or, or your parenting, for example, is another one. We all want to be good parents. And we're probably all afraid that we're not good parents. And it can very, very quickly turn a good thing like being a parent into an idolatrous thing, being a bad thing. But if we're working out of the identity of who God says we are in Jesus, that changes everything. Now, that means we'll have to often be repenting. It's not like, hmm, I should think about this maybe once every six months. And we need to think about this a lot. We don't have to be kind of anxious and always kind of like staring at our own states of our own souls. But we should be asking God, where are my idols so that I don't stay in them? Like, that's a very easy and simple question to ask. Now, why is this bad? Why is having an idol really a bad thing? I think we can all fool ourselves and say, you know, actually... Having, you know, being a little bit too devoted to my career, too kind of devoted to parenting my kids or whatever, it's not really that bad of a thing. It's probably something I can get by with. Um, like, it's, it's, it's not really that bad. Well, there, there's a few things. There's three specific things on why it is not actually good for us. First, is it really hurting anyone? One, it hurts us. We sell ourselves short when we give ourselves to idols because we deserve more. You deserve more than an idol. You are worth so much more. You are worth nothing less than God himself. And, and any anytime we shoot lower than that, we're selling ourselves short. We've all been disenfranchised with how the world has been recently, right? I think that shows that the world is actually not set up to perfectly give us all that we need. We need something more, and that something more is God. Having idols also poisons what we really love. If we elevate our family to an idol... Let's say we, our family is kind of like on the pedestal for us. We will be asking that family to be something that they can never be. We'll be asking to get from that family what we can really only get from God. And then when we don't get that thing, like we'll, we'll be resentful or we'll feel guilty that we're not doing enough to make it happen. Or we'll kind of feel anxious. There'll be a burden upon us that we shouldn't bear. There'll be a burden upon them and they will feel it. They won't maybe be able to name it, but they will feel it. They aren't meant to, be, to bear that burden either. Only God can fulfill that role. And you are asking that of your family, you're asking that of a partner, you're asking that of a career. All that poisons the good relationship we can have with those things, the kind of relationship we do want with those things. So if you love others, you will love them on the terms that they were created to be loved. Not as gods, but as humans. Uh, or not as, not as a god, but as a career, as a vocation. Now lastly, the most important reason why idolatrous uh, activity is bad for us, why idol worship is bad, is because it's cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. Giving ourselves to others and not to God because is, is depriving God of what he deserves, not only as our creator, but for all those who are in Jesus, also as our recreator, like double deprivation. Giving ourselves to other gods is committing treason against the most powerful king. It's withholding what is rightfully his. It's putting our agenda over his. How selfish is that? And yet that's kind of where we find ourselves. Just as committing a crime would be going against the state, there's a penalty for that. And the penalty is missing out on God and being under, um, under his guilt. Now, some things to consider in all of this. And this is a really quick kind of overview of what idol worship is. The f one thing to consider is the first thing is you worship idols more than you think you do. 
That is true, I know, for everybody. It's true for me. It's true for you. You worship idols more than you think you do. Yeah, maybe I'm okay. You're probably not as okay as you think. Secondly, this robs you of the life that you were meant to experience, that you were meant to have more than you realize. Like, maybe I'm missing out a little bit. No, you're actually missing out on a lot more than you realize. And the third thing, the great thing, is that Jesus comes to rescue us from this negative cycle. By ourselves, we get stuck in that. We can try harder, but we find ourselves even in trying harder. We're, we're, as John Calvin says, our, heart, our, our hearts are idol factories. We're just bent on making these idols. And we will kind of churn them out over and over and over unless someone comes and changes the program. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, you may not be the best at pointing out your own idols. You are probably not. You will need other people. We need others. If you don't have someone else in your life to help you in this way, to speak those words of love, that sometimes might be difficult, but someone who's going to love you enough to say those difficult words, if you don't have someone, please find somebody. Or, or you know, make the beginning steps of what, that's look, what that looks like. If you're part of our church, if you're part of Redeemer, that's why we have core groups and missional communities. Core groups are small groups of same-sex people, like three to four people, two, three, four people, talking about these things together, people who really get to know each other well. Missional communities are, are it's like a larger family, and uh, it's where we kind of do this in a larger group all together. If you're not in one of these and you want to get in on one of these, just let us know, and uh, we will be able to help you. And if you're not part of Redeemer, there's a link on the bottom here, redeemermcr.com live. If you're not there already, you can click the sign up button, and that will get you uh, connected with us and you can reply to any email and, and ask for help in this way. And if you are just out there listening, the question really is, what might be your next small step? And, and it may not be Redeemer, it might be some other church, but getting connected to a church that's going to love you in this way is, is a necessary aspect of your growth with God. So that's a little bit about idolatry. Like what is an idol? Well, hopefully we, we helped clarify some things. Let's, let's get on to this point too here. How Jesus disrupts our worship of idols. How Jesus disrupts idol worship. Let's look at verse 27 here uh, in chapter 19. Uh, this is a, um, an idol maker, kind of um, very angry that Paul, who is a Christian, talking about how idols maybe aren't all that they say they are. Uh, I'll, actually, I'll start in verse 25. He says, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Idol worship is always going to reward us in some way, small ways. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced us and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says, Gods made by human hands are, not, are no gods at all. That's a controversial thing. There are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. There's a lot of fears going on here. That's what happens when we confront idols. A lot of fears kind of come to the surface. So the first thing that we find in verse 27 is idolatry loses its good name. When Jesus comes along, idolatry loses its quote-unquote good name. There's a good name we all, we don't want to say we're doing bad things. We always want to say we're doing good things. And so we have a good name that we plaster over bad things all the time. But Christianity is speaking truth to that kind of power, to that kind of fear. Paul said that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. That was, and that still is, a controversial statement to say, like, actually, 
the good life of getting a car or a house or going out drinking all the time is actually really not that good, that's not going to really win you any friends. And that's true then, it's true today. That's saying that everything else that poses as a god or, or wants to have that kind of godlike status, everything else actually is not really as good as it says it is. In our world, politics is a cultural god. People care a lot about politics. Calling out the failings of politics is easy because we're led by broken people. The right calls out the left and vice versa, you know, and everyone feels good about themselves and their kind of um, insanity. But when Jesus comes along, he calls out politics across the board. He doesn't say, you know, the right, you have it wrong. You guys need to look at the left or vice versa. He doesn't say any, any of that. He, he just says, actually, if you're giving your life to politics, like you're going to lose it because that's not where love is. That's not where life is. It's, it's um, not a particular side that's bad in itself, although both sides obviously have their own failings, but it's insufficient to give people, to expect that people are going to give you the good life. Your best leaders with your best system will let people down. Jesus disrupts idol worship and they lose their good name. What else happens here? Well, we see uh, not only does idolatry lose its good name, but places of idolatry are discredited. That's what we see in, in verse 7. The temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. We like when it's things out there that are discredited, right? Like we can talk about how horrible betting shops are, or we can talk about how horrible uh, like a, a systematic oppression of debt is. Um, we can talk about how horrible unjust laws are that keep poor people poor and rich people rich, or, or laws that, that fall into systemic racism. That's like a big topic now. We all like the fact that it's out there. And of course, all of us, you know, we don't need to change. It's all the other things out there. It's more difficult when it's in here. But Jesus comes, when, when he comes, he disrupts everything out there and in here, in our own homes, in our own hearts, and in our cities, in our government. Jesus disrupts idols out there and in here, from systemic racism to pride from unjust systems that keep people homeless, that keep people in prison, to being grumpy and short with my words to others. Jesus disrupts all those things. Discredit here is a word that means to be exposed for what it truly is, less than what it promised. Politics promises a lot. It's never really delivered. When we expose politics for what it is, are, are kind of putting too much hope in the fact that people are going to lead us, it gets discredited a bit. And then our hope, where are we going to put it? We have to put it somewhere better. Our places of idolatry will always be counted as nothing in Jesus's presence, both in here and out there. Places of idolatry will be seen as what they are, nothing. What we also see is the idol itself loses its godlike power. Um, it says that Artemis will be discredited, and the, the, uh, the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the whole world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. If, if Paul has his way, and if Paul's message gets out, all these other idols are going to be robbed of their godlike power. The only way our idols appear alive is because we're bleeding out and giving our blood. We keep them alive. They are vampires. Whatever idol that might be, it could be our pride, it could be whatever. It's sucking the life force from all of us, and all the while we think we're getting the better end of the deal. But we're not. We're just wasting away, emaciated souls. Our idols never come through on their promises. How could they, really? Like, they can't. They're really just dead. And here we are, slowly killing ourselves, 
thinking that this dead thing is going to bring us to life. But Jesus disrupts all of that. He disrupts all of that. He gave his blood. He doesn't ask us to give ours. He gave his blood. He saw we were dead. And Jesus, who is life and whose light is the life of all people, gave his life for ours. When he does, we come alive. We lose our lives when we chase after other things. We gain our life when we chase after him. Now, your career, as good as it is, and I hope it is good. I hope you love it. I hope, actually, all the good things in our lives, I hope it's, it's difficult for them to not be worshipped as idols because it means it's something we really enjoy. But say, like, your career is not going to sacrifice for you. It will ask you to sacrifice for it. We probably have all experienced that. Anyone's career been kind of weird recently? Like everyone has, and it's going to ask you to sacrifice for it. It won't sacrifice for you. Your idea of a perfect family will not sacrifice for you. It's the other way around. But even for our idols that would sacrifice for us, say we, we have a partner that would give their lives for us, and we all want partners like that. They, they really love you. Even if they would give their life for you, they don't have the power to give you the life that you really need. Not while you're living and not when you're dead. They might have good intentions, but surely we need more than good intentions. Jesus on the cross is more than a good intention, far more than a good intention. He did more than enable us to experience life. Jesus raised back from the dead is more than a good thought or a good example. It did something. Jesus' death and resurrection made us alive. It did it. He did it. Nothing less than God dying and rising again could bring us back from our own dark places. That's what it took. So if there's something better out there than God himself taking on our flesh, being born, living, dying for us, staying dead for three days, rising back again and ascending into heaven, if there's something better than that out there, let's worship that. Because that's at the, very, that's at the least what we need in order to experience life. But there's nothing else better than that. And that's exactly what God did for us. So if you want, uh, if what you give your life to can be robbed of its godlike power, if, if that awesome thing that you're all about, if it can, if it's possible for it to be robbed of its awesomeness, it is not worth your worship. If, you, if the divine majesty of whatever it is, it's possible to be reduced or to be robbed, it's not worth your worship. Jesus's power, Jesus's awesomeness, Jesus's divine majesty can never be robbed. It will never be robbed. Now, if all this is true, we should be atheists of the highest sort, at least with respect to idols, right? Like following Jesus as God means we become atheists to all other gods. So what would it look like to be more atheistic in, in all the other kind of idols that, that we worship? What would it look like to be an atheist to the God of success? What would that look like? What would it look like to be an atheist to the, the God of telling you that your partner is going to complete you? What would it look like to be an atheist to, uh, to that career that you feel like gives you meaning and gives you comfort and gives you security? We don't believe in those gods anymore. That's not who we follow. And they, that's good because they can't give us those things anyway. And therefore, we don't follow their worship rituals either. We're formed in a new way. What would it mean to be an atheist to the God of comfort? I don't believe what that God, I don't believe that God like it is what he says he is or does what he says he's going to do. I won't be a disciple of comfort, of the perfect family, of, of the middle class path, whatever else you want to put in there. 
And that's why the early Christians were called atheists. We have a different kind of way of living. Listen to this as a, a little bit of a longer quote. This is a quote from the second century um, talking about Christians. This is a quote coming from someone who's not a Christian explaining to uh, the government like what, what's the deal with these Christians. This is what he says. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their children, either literally, as in now, or metaphorically, as we sacrifice our children to all sorts of things now. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens in heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws in their lives. They're more moral than the moral laws that they have here. They love all and are persecuted by all. They're poor, yet make many rich. They're completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. And when they do good, they're punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they're brought to life. This is how we should live. This is how the early Christians lived. This is what the Christian life looks like. For the early Christians, being an atheist to the other gods often meant martyrdom. They would be killed for sport. And the Christians, though, they were all in because they knew that the love that they received from Jesus outweighed it all. <laughs> they weren't super Christians. They knew much less about the Bible than any one of you do, probably. They were average people who were here with Jesus, and if they could risk martyrdom then, maybe we could risk a tiny bit now. But let's go into this with our eyes open and not naively kind of fall into whatever um, idle disruption stuff is going to happen. Any disruption has a reaction like ripples in a lake. So Jesus has come to disrupt these idols. And what we see in the story of Ephesus, there's two reactions. The first one, there's a backlash. The first one we can expect here, and basically Christians at any time, there will be some kind of backlash. Know that there will be a backlash from others if you follow Jesus. This can be your friends, your work colleagues, your family, probably all of you have experienced that one way or another. This is something that is not new to the Christian experience. People here in, in Ephesus, all of Ephesus here, they're in an uproar. They, people are chanting for hours, hours. Don't these people have like something better to do with their lives except for chant? It reminds me of like watching old 80s movies of people chanting USA, USA. You know, some people are just going to be set against Jesus and his message, and, and they'll find a reason to not listen, right? It's verse 34. Um, it says, when they found out the guy who's speaking is Jewish, like, ah, oh, this guy's Jewish, we can't talk to him. They'll find any reason. They'll use racism as a way to suppress the message. Prejudice has always been with us. Now, there's a misunderstanding here, though. The people in Ephesus believe that Christians have come to destroy their city. They, they think Christians have come to kind of destroy their way of life, to destroy their livelihood. But that's not really what they were doing. Christians were calling to something better. They didn't come for destruction. They came for life because they saw people living in death. So when the backlash comes in your life, you will, they will and, and you will also be, as these people were, unfairly treated, You'll um, be misunderstood. It will be really often difficult to find a rational, real conversation with someone. 
And this is nothing new. As difficult as it is, press on. Like Paul did here in Ephesus, and like the church did here in Ephesus, like all the other Christians here in Ephesus. Because what we see is that backlash. Uh, on one side, it turns into a riot, it turns into an uproar, but the story doesn't end there. So we expect a backlash, but we also expect God to move. Expect God to move. This is where we see the transition from a riot to a church. There's a, a this kind of backlash of, of rioting, and then also an, another kind of reaction where God's moving in the hearts of people. And this is how the church at Ephesus got started. <laughs> Imagine if like a year ago, there was a, a big massive riot in central Cholton because of Redeemer. Like that would really shape who we are, if anyone even still remained after that. But through this, a church gets planted in Ephesus, even through a riot. And the church is strengthened in Ephesus. So expect a backlash also expect God to move. Whenever Jesus disrupts idol worship, there will be a backlash and God will work. Sometimes that's happening in our hearts simultaneously. Sometimes that happens outside of us. Though we can expect God to work, we may not really always plan it, right? Like who planned the pandemic? Of course, nobody did. Riots, pandemics, whatever. God works through all of it. And we're not always going to know exactly where he's going or how he'll work. We're not in control of that. We won't always know what God's going to do, but we can know that he will do something and we should make plans. But when we see God work, the plans that we have should change. If God, we find God's leading us one way, like we should follow that. And that means we need to change our plans because Jesus is at the top of the org chart. He, Jesus is the leader. And so when he leads us in a different way, we respond and we follow. Now, a lot of our lives might feel like they're on pause at the moment. You know, maybe I guess you can kind of go back to the pub or the restaurant now, though things will just be weird for a long time. And, um, and our lives will, aspects of our lives will be on pause for a long time. But God is never on pause. God is never on pause. He's always working. The Bible says he never sleeps. So as parts of our lives are on pause, we will get to see him move. We launched Redeemer. We, we launched a new missional community. There are conversations some of us are having with others about faith that we haven't had before. God is on the move in your life and in the lives of those you love. Uh, let me point out actually something interesting here. The group here that's rioting in the NIV, you ha if you have the NIV, is translated as assembly like in, in uh, verse 32. Like the, the assembly was in confusion, that word assembly. That word uh, is the same word that we have for church. It's, it's, it's ekklesia. It's a Greek word. The same word assembly is a, for, that could describe a riot is the same word assembly that could describe a church. I think this illustrates an amazing reality. All of us were once part of the assembly rioting against the claims of Jesus. We were afraid to leave our idols. And in the fear that we had, we also probably experienced anger or, or discontent. And we shouted, at least in our own hearts, we did and we do. But God, in his kindness took us out of that rioting mob, devoted to things that will only lead to death, and brought us into his assembly, devoted to him, where he gives us life. From our own rioting hearts, far from God to a family that God himself has brought together, joining him as he brings more in. This is what Jesus has done for all of us. So, let's not be naive and recognize and let's recognize our own areas of idolatry. 
say, ah, not me. It's probably for somebody else. No, it's for you. Ask the Spirit to reveal these places to you. Ask others to walk through these questions that I posted. I'll, I'll put them in an email, like those, those idle questions. When Jesus disrupts those idols, let's become atheists for him. Let's become atheists for Jesus, depending on him and his people more to carry us through. And when there is a backlash against us, we pray for perseverance. We pray for endurance to get through it. We ask others to help carry our burdens. This is why we're part of a family together. And also, let's, let's pray and, and wait for God to move or, or out pray to ask to have eyes to see where he is moving. And when he does move, let's follow. From a riot to a church, from idols to the living God, Jesus has made a way for us to know him and experience life as it was meant to be in all its fullness and all its glory and all the love that we can get from God. Let me pray.